Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 12th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It is an offence for a motorist to overtake if it is dangerous to do so. A fine of €80 as well as three penalty points will result in such a circumstance. But from midnight, a change in the law introduced a new and a separate offence to dangerously overtake a cyclist. Drivers will also get three penalty points for this offence but face a higher fine instead of the €80 normally incurred that increases to 120 euro. We'll talk about this presently with the chair of the Transport Committee, Finnegales Fergus O'Dowd, who is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd, morning, and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us here on the programme. Perhaps, though, we can start with something completely different, because as a TD for Louth, uh, I'm sure you're as interested as, as anybody else in what was a massive drug seizure yesterday. Gardy estimates uh, they've recovered 1.4 million euro worth of cocaine. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm delighted they've been so successful. It follows very hot on their successful also uh, arresting people bringing, I think, 3.2 million in across the border in Dundalk last week. And I think the Gardaí are winning the battle against crime and particularly against drug crime. Um, I think it's very important that these successes are taking place. And clearly and obviously, you know, the more the more effective they are, uh, the better it is for ordinary people and the more people that end up behind bars for these hugely criminal activities, the safer our streets would be for all of us. 20 kilos of cocaine, it would seem like a massive amount of cocaine. Mm. I, I suppose people would see cocaine being used uh, on television and that sort of thing if they haven't used it themselves or haven't uh, watched other people use it. Uh, but quite a small amount of it is generally used by somebody when they take a hit. Uh, this is a suitcase load. Yes, it's absolutely right. Yesterday we had a meeting uh, with Regina Doherty after your programme, Michael, in the Red Door and Drogheda with the with the team in the Red Door, P- Councillor Pierre Smith, and all of the people who, who, who use the services and who provide the services there. And it's a matter of huge uh, concern to everybody, the amount of drug abuse and particularly cocaine. 
Um, we welcome the fact that the HSE, I believe this week, are opening up their facility, their, their drug treatment facility up, up off of the Knoll Road, where there will be, obviously, professional people available to help people who have who have drug issues. But we need to do an awful lot more to support people who have a drug problem and who are trying to deal with it and to, you know, to restore normality to their lives. So um, it's very important that, obviously, that people like Regina Doherty mm. visit the Red Door, but more importantly, that money actually comes to community groups I've organised a meeting uh, for the 21st in the Dáil of all of the TDs from Loudmead, Cavan and Monaghan to meet with the regional drug strategy uh, team uh, so that they would be running the meeting. I've just organised a meeting to say what their ask is from all of the politicians to fight this drug crime and this drug problem. And it's not just arresting drug dealers, it's preventing or, or helping people get out from drug use and also putting proper supports in the community. Um, and clearly, obviously, the big question is the question of recreational drug use, which is endemic. Mm-hmm. And that when everybody, anybody takes a, a, an illegal substance, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're adding to the problem, obviously. Um, and obviously, that, there's a lot of money being made by, by a small number of people. On. Well, a lot of money. We know the value of this particular hall, nearly one and a half million euro, at least that's the Garda estimate. Uh, even if uh, it falls short of that and is worth a million euro, that's an awful lot of money by anybody's standard. Uh, and that's the cost of it. Uh, these dealers obviously value it uh, in terms of lives and lives have been lost as a result of these drugs. Uh, have you uh, any... Uh, feeling uh, as to how this would play into the local market, uh, would that would that uh, be the kind of uh, uh, co- amount of cocaine that would? That. I, I yeah. was in touch with the guardie this morning. I just congratulate them on on their, on their seizure, uh, but obviously, clearly, there's significant consumption locally, and it is obviously it's very bad for people's health because, as we know, it increased cocaine. I understand increases the heart rate and makes you more liable to get violent if you mix it mm. with other substances. And people get very tetchy when they don't have their cocaine, if they're addicted. Of uh, course they do, of course they do. And that's and that's one of the issues we were discussing yesterday. Are they going to find it hard to get cocaine as a result of this haul? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, when one supply is stopped, you know, they will try and get another supply in a different way. I mean, it, they displace one supplier and obviously new people move into the market. That's That's what happens. Um, but clearly, the Gardaí are winning the battle. I know there's been uh, there's been a, a fatal shooting out in East Mead recently, and we need more Garda out there. We need a new Garda station in that area as well. But I think the Gardaí are cooperating <coughs> very well together, and this is further proof of their successes. But it's only by eternal vigilance, you know, and by by patrolling and using covert intelligence, by using cab. You know, by mm. by all of the actions that the Gardaí are taking successfully, uh, that we can help, you know, stem stem this problem. Okay, I take it as, uh, that a uh, prosecution will follow on from this uh, man in his thirties was arrested uh, when his vehicle was stopped in uh, the Donor Road uh, Industrial Estate. Uh, this was around lunchtime yesterday at twelve thirty-five p.m., just after half twelve in the afternoon. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that uh, if the white powder that Gardy discovered is uh, found to be cocaine, uh, that so much cocaine. 20 kilos of it uh, would be considered uh, very uh, grimly by the courts. 
It is, and, and the other point is that um, sometimes the substances are diluted or mixed with other even more dangerous drugs, um, and that obviously you have fatalities uh, occurring as well, that people, you don't know what you're taking, mm. you don't know the purity of it. You know, you believe it's, you, you can't trust the people who bring it to you. And uh, you're putting your life at risk. And I mean, we all know the tragedies of young people, particularly, uh, you know, sudden tragic deaths as a result of a drug overdose, which is, which has been contaminated by further and other unknown substances. So it's, it's a very dangerous for your life. It's a very dangerous business to get involved in at all. And obviously, clearly, it's a big community issue. And it's for all of us. Uh, to deal with in our own lives and in our own families and you know like mm-hmm. you know, there's no point in you telling your children you know you can't take drugs yep. if you're abusing your, some yourself or well, you know, it might be a dangerous no business but no it is a, a business and uh, some businessman has lost uh, an awful lot of money or businesswoman as uh, the case may be uh, but uh, we'll hear more from uh, the guards about that uh, I'm sure a little bit later on in the programme let's talk uh, if we can about this uh, change oh, in the law and this new and separate law uh, which makes it an offence uh, to dangerously overtake a cyclist. What's your understanding of this? How will it work? Well, I don't actually know how it will work other than I've been assured by the Department of Transport that the Guardi will enforce it. Obviously, collecting evidence is the key thing. So I presume if I'm if I'm on a bike and if I am dangerously overtaken, if my life has been put at risk by somebody coming too close to me and putting me at risk because of their closeness, if I make that complaint to the Gardaí, they will investigate it and they will prosecute if they believe that they have a case. Mm. Uh, we've asked in the Minister for Transport, uh, he was, we were hoping to have him in this week, uh, we're hoping to have him in next week, but apparently he's not available now uh, till the first week in December, which mm. I, I'm not happy with. I think he should come in. So, um, so, we, so if you're riding a, a bike uh, and yeah. I overtake you and... Uh, you feel yeah, well. Yeah. Well, yeah. if I overtake you and you feel it was dangerous, uh, yeah, you can call course, yeah. you, you can call the guards and say, give them my reg. Let's say and say that yes, car. It, yes, of course. Yeah, just like if you were, you know, if you were driving dangerously, like it is, it is dangerous. And then, and then, what would happen? Yeah. Well, the, well, obviously, the, it, I don't know the law mm. on this one. It's only been passed last night. What we're talking here about is the is the is the, the penalty points that you will get. And obviously, did I presume it's a fine that's 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 uh, issued on the spot? Yeah, but I mean, uh, if the guards yeah. call me up, I'm going to say I didn't overtake anybody dangerously. And uh, well, maybe that's, that's the may, maybe they shouldn't be on a bicycle. Well, the, that's that's obviously everybody's entitled to a fair defence and a fair mm. or fair. I mean, the guardie are not going to act uh, irresponsibly, nor do cyclists act irresponsibly. Mm. Not most drivers. Oh well, I think a lot of people act irresponsibly. A lot of drivers act irresponsibly, and a lot of cyclists act irresponsibly. I mean, it would be foolish to say so, yeah, The yeah, fact yeah, is yeah. that we have something like fifty-six thousand mm. cyclists every day in Ireland um, on, on on roads that are not suitable for them. Well, that, that was the point I was just going to make, mm. you, Michael. That we have we have coming into our committee next week. We have the Road Safety Authority. We have the national uh, the National Transport Authority to talk about and the Department of Transport to talk about these issues and mm. to articulate the expenditure that we need to put into proper and safe cycle lanes in our country. Uh, the ideal is that there will be totally separate cycle space, separate from all of the traffic so that you mm. can cycle without, except at junctions, obviously, without meeting any vehicle traffic at all. 
and we need we need at the moment we're spending about three percent of our national transport authority funding on roads is going on cycle paths and that we need to get that up the international recommendation is 20 percent but we need to get that significantly up and the questions we want to ask the minister when he does come in but we'll be asking the department that next week and i think it's a constructive mm. change it's it's it reduces people's carbon footprint it's it's healthier for everybody, but it must be safer. Well, healthier if you survive the experience, uh, and therein lies the problem, because the roads just aren't built for yeah. bikes and for cars. Uh, and yeah. uh, the minister says that uh, there's going to be a rollout of new signage, and this will tie in with uh, that uh, 1.5 Stay Alive campaign. Uh, one metre uh, should be given for overtaking a, a, a bicycle in a built-up area and one and a half metres uh, where the speed limit exceeds 50 kilometres an hour. I mean, quite often that's not going to be realistic, isn't it? Well, that's, that's the question. It has to, That is the law now and that's what you have to meet. Uh, clearly, conditions are very indifferent to roads and obviously, if I could, you know, the lighting... The but you, then that's a ridiculous law. Yeah. Well, I don't. Well, Michael, I'll put it to you a different way. If I can make this point mm. to you, in 2017, 10%, there were 16 cyclists killed on our roads. That's yes. 10% of all deaths. Mm. Yet they make up a very small fraction of, of, of individuals on our roads. Last year, nine people died on our roads cycling. And this year, and so far, that figure is also nine. So it is a very serious matter. And people do lose their lives. Uh, and, and they lose some, you know, obviously because there's not too care and attention taken by, in some cases, by, by drivers. So I think it's important that, that we are very much aware mm. of, of, the, of, the, of the safety of cyclists. Um, and I think that the road safety campaign is effective. I agree with you. How do I judge a metre? How do I judge one pound five metre? Mm. I think the only thing you can do if you're a driver is move as far away from the cyclist as you possibly well, can. What do you do if the cyclist on the same side of the road? What do you do if the, the road, What do you do if the cyclist? Yeah. What do you do if the cyclist is in the middle of the road? Well, that is the problem. I mean, I've met in Dublin coming home the evenings when it's dark. I've met cyclists in dark clothes, no light, mm. coming the wrong way to meet me, and it happens. It, it happens to lots of drivers, and mm. there are there are there is very serious. Um, Issues arising, particularly in dark nights, with cyclists who aren't properly—you can't see them—and they're coming the wrong way. That is a fact. And also, when you see cyclists who have no proper headgear at all, and I mean that's a risk that they're taking themselves. Mm. I understand that, and I haven't seen the report yet. But there is a report you has already been published. I was seeking it yesterday, but where all of the debts are gone into. They're completely analysed in terms of the time, the conditions of the road, you know, whether somebody, you know, the blood test, whether they had alcohol or whatever, um, and and that will that will inform us as well. But it is clearly the case that more people will be cycling in the future. That will have to be safer. That we'll have to spend more money on dedicated cycle lanes, and that if you do go too close to a cyclist in a dangerous way. Um, you know that 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 does that places you that you're significantly in breach of the law, mm. and I think that that protects it protects everybody. It's really making people aware mm. of the danger. Well, uh, it means effectively that a, a twenty minute journey may end up taking you an hour. It may or it may not. I mean, if you have a dedicated cycle lane, and that's what we need mm. to do, 
then this issue won't arise. No, no, no. But we don't have dedicated cycle lines and we're not going to have them. Of course it is, like any other European country, but we're not going to have them in the immediate future. Uh, We're not going to have them in the next decade uh, to the the extent that we need them, which means that motorists, if they obey this law, will have to cycle behind or will have to drive behind uh, bicycles. In the the city of Dublin, for instance, there's, there's, there's going to be hundreds of kilometres of dedicated cycle lanes now because the bus connect lanes mm. will be also a segregated separate cycle lane on both ways. So that's a significant change. Mm. Well, we don't live in Dublin, and even in Dublin, be, uh, uh, and even in Dublin, there'll be hundreds of kilometres that I don't have them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, but, it makes it, it makes it a daft law. I don't think it makes it daft. I of course think it's it going does. To be difficult. I agree, Michael. The cars I, I, have to drive behind bicycles if they're to obey the law. That's a daft no, law. Not to, well, that's one way of looking at it. I think. I think the other way of looking at it is that is that we have to be more aware uh, of cyclists. We have to make sure that we don't go close to them. Uh, and the problem is that you have to drive behind them or you break the law. Well, Michael, I think you use common sense as well, and I don't think that the guardie. Would, would in any way... Uh, well, there are signs going up saying you have to give one and a half metres. Uh, there's many places where that won't be possible. I, I don't disagree with you, Michael. And, uh, especially and if the cyclists are, are, are cycling two or three abreast or are cycling in the middle of the road, it won't be possible. But these are the, que- well, these are the questions that we'll be asking next week. Okay. And obviously there are answers that you rightly ask for there. I don't have them all. Okay. But do I think it's a good idea? I do. Great. We'll come back to that next week and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Finnegal TD in Louth, Fergus it out. Michael Reed on LMFM. Turkey is uh, to deport Lisa Smith and send her back uh, to Ireland. She should be arrested straight away, according to independent uh, Senator Jared Crockwell, who joins us now. Uh, why should she be arrested straight away, do you think? Uh, and good morning to you, by the way. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Um, yes, it's my view that uh, when Miss Smith returns to this island, as she will, uh, she must be arrested immediately. I believe the Garda Shirkana already have a substantial file uh, to submit to the Director of Public Prosecutions. But my main concern is that until she's debriefed completely and we are satisfied she has been fully de-radicalised, uh, she can't be let loose in the country. Okay. And I appreciate she, she has family who are listening to this. Yeah. And uh, I, I understand how difficult it will be for them. OK. Uh, explain to us, uh, if you would, what you mean by debriefed. Well, I mean, we know that she went to Syria. We know that she was a trained soldier when she went out there. Uh, we trained know trained by the Irish Army. Trained, trained mm-hmm. by the Irish mm-hmm. Defence Forces. Yeah. We know that she went to a terrorist organisation. We do not know whether or not she was personally involved in acts of terrorism. Uh, but we do know that the acts that were carried out out there were absolutely heinous. Um, the most horrendous murder of Europeans and American journalists, uh, to name but a few. So we need to know what she knew about that. Was she involved? Uh, was, even as an observer, was she involved in that? Uh, if she was involved as an observer, even there will be issues for her personally with respect to her state of mental health. Um, so we need to know exactly what she was involved with, who she was involved with, and how far into the organisation she was involved. It may not be possible to determine 
what level of knowledge she has uh, because Lisa Smith has uh, given a, a number of interviews. It would seem uh, that she is adamant uh, that she has had no involvement and for as long as she maintains that position, it will be impossible to garner any evidence against her. Yeah, I, I understand that that is her position, Michael, and I do understand the point you're making. Um, however, um, you know, she was not naive going out there. She She's a grown woman. Uh, she was a trained soldier. Um, uh, what would you or I say in a similar circumstance? Oh, we, we, we weren't mm. involved in anything. We just went out and got married and had a happy mm. little life somewhere. Mm. Uh, Quite frankly, uh, that does not wash for me. And we have uh, enough... It it may not wash for you, it may not wash for me, it may not wash for anybody listening to us uh, this morning, but it's not illegal, and it wasn't illegal. Well, terrorism activity is illegal, even even outside the country, for citizens of this state to be involved in terrorism. Mm. And I understand that the Assistant Garda Commissioner for Intelligence and Security uh, says that they have a substantial file to uh, deliver to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And ultimately, it will rest with the Director of Public Mm. Prosecutions whether or not she's charged. But, Michael, she cannot simply step off a plane in Dublin Airport and walk out and sit into a car and drive Mm. off somewhere. That simply cannot happen. Okay, uh, but uh, we don't know what's in that file or if there's anything incriminating in that file in terms of uh, the level of proof that would be needed in front of uh, a judge and a court of law. What we do know is that Miss Smith travelled to Syria. There was nothing illegal about that. She says she wasn't involved in terrorism. And uh, like anybody else in uh, this country, uh, there is uh, the basic principle of innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. But we also have a responsibility to the citizens of this state and to the vulnerable citizens of this state not to allow somebody who has herself been radicalised to uh, come back here and participate Mm. in the radicalisation of others. Uh, It Mm. is an extremely sensitive time, Michael, for Mm. the state, um, but the welfare of the people has to be first. Uh, And that is the fear, and it is an obvious fear for obvious reasons. Uh, But if there isn't the proof uh, to support that concern, well, then there can be no consequence, at least no consequence uh, in the way of incarceration, uh, locking Lisa Smith up for the protection of others. Uh, But uh, then that would lead to to some serious uh, security questions uh, and the issue of surveillance, which would be uh, an obvious requirement, wouldn't it? Absolutely, Michael. And I believe when it comes to the um, debriefing uh, or interrogation of Ms. Smith, uh, all of the security services of the state, both military and uh, Gardaí, have to be involved. We have to we have to establish how she became radicalised in the first place. Well, she what says possessed... she hasn't been radicalised, of course. Uh, I, yes, I yeah. that. <laughs> but what possessed a young woman in Ireland to head out to a war torn place where the most heinous crimes were committed by the people she joined up with? What possessed her to do that? Uh, and uh, why did she stay? Uh, what damage has it done to her personally? The issue of the child. The child involved can claim three um, uh, citizenships. Mm. Citizens of Syria, of the UK, we understand mm-hmm. that the father was a uh, UK, and yeah. citizen of Ireland. But we also have to establish that the child actually is hers as well. Mm. And, and uh, these are all very sensitive, difficult questions to answer 
but they have to be answered before. And you're dead right. We can't simply put her into a cell and lock the door and say, well, she's safe in there now until we're satisfied that she was involved in nothing. It's a hugely problematic time for the state and surveillance, will, if, she is, if she is freed at some stage, surveillance will be a huge issue for the state, uh, uh, costing millions. Millions, literally. Uh, and uh, the issue of uh, the daughter, little Rakaya, who is uh, two years of age, uh, will be of great interest to people locally, her relatives who have never met her, uh, who will be wanting to see who this person is uh, and get to know her and so forth. Uh, but there is this other issue. Uh, it was suggested, I think, by Declan Power that Lisa Smith would be safer if uh, she was locked up for her own security because people will feel so strongly about her uh, and to the threat that she poses uh, but that threat uh, will obviously be on the minds of many people and that will lead to that surveillance of her if she isn't uh, held by the authorities now I, I heard that that could take up to 32 people a day to watch over her would that be a, a reasonable estimation in your mind that, that would be reasonable enough to, to expect that with shift work and all sorts of other things involved and listen we are talking about a family of there who are about to see their daughter return home, their sister uh, uh, return home, niece, whatever you want, granddaughter. And at the end of the day, for them, it's going to be hugely problematic. I'm sure they have had difficulties up to now. But when the lady steps uh, into the community, that is going to cause huge problems. And Declan, my good uh, former colleague, Declan Powers, 100% correct, she would be safer behind bars. But we live in a democracy where you just can't throw somebody behind bars because you don't like what they were involved in. And do you believe that uh, as a state uh, we've been caught on the hop in that we didn't make it illegal to travel to the Islamic State? Uh, We uh, are now in a position uh, where Lisa Smith uh, could return home uh, and, uh, in fact, she's being deported home uh, and rather than being repatriated uh, on request, uh, she's been sent home, deported by the Turkish authorities. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I I understand what you're saying about the legislation and perhaps we need to look at the legislation with respect to involvement in terrorist activities or with terrorism um, in in the broader sense. Um, We probably need to do that in the not-too-distant future. But I think the legislation that's there already, uh, certainly listening to the Gardaí, they are satisfied that they they have sufficient powers and sufficient legislation to at least commence or to finalise their investigation and hand a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And as you rightly point out, Michael, the Director of Public Prosecutions will have the final say as to whether charges follow. And um, it's going to be an extremely challenging time for the state at large, not just for the Smiths, uh, not just for Miss Smith herself, but for the state. The state has many, many questions to answer with respect to how we're going to deal with these people. Because remember, Miss Smith is not the only one out there. Mm. And that is going to be a serious problem as we bring these people home. Uh, we're living in a very dangerous world right now. And um, I really have grave concerns about bringing people like Miss Smith back home here. But she is a citizen of the state and we, we have an obligation to our citizens. Okay. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Independent Senator Jared Crockwell. 
As you know, uh, the Taoiseach has said uh, there will not be a general election before Christmas, but there will be four by-elections. They'll take place in just over two weeks. On Friday, the 29th of November, doll seats left vacant after the European elections in Cork, North Central, Dublin, Fingal, Dublin Midwest and Wexford will be settled. When a general election is held, Fianna Fáil will campaign to end the compo culture in this country, promising to end personal injury claims for whiplash. Meanwhile, Fine Gael will decide if Maria Bailey will be on the ticket in Dunleary Rathdown. Let's talk about this and some related issues with Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish Independent. Good morning to you, Hugh, and thanks for joining us as always. Uh, the Fine Gael National Executive was to meet tonight to decide the Swingate TD's fate, but that meeting has been deferred, has it? Yeah, that's right, Michael. It's been deferred to uh, Thursday evening and uh, nothing particularly unusual about that. Uh, Probably just uh, scheduling arrangements and and various uh, members of the National Executive's diaries and whatnot. Um, But the meeting is on uh, Thursday evening and it's widely expected that at that meeting um, the Taoiseach will make a recommendation as to the future of Maria Bailey on the general election ticket in Dunleary. Uh, and it's widely expected within the party that, that the Taoiseach, off the back of members in Dunleary voting for the party to urgently review that ticket, um, will recommend that, that Maria Bailey should be removed. But nothing is a certainty in politics, mm. so we, we'll have to await uh, the outcome of that meeting. But certainly the, 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 there's a, a strong view within the party that, um, not, by, by no means universal, but, but a strong view in the party that, that she should be removed from the ticket and that Fine Gael uh, should move on from this affair. Although there are you know, plenty of others in, in Fine Gael who believe she has suffered enough at this stage and that to remove her from the ticket would be uh, particularly vindictive uh, at a time when she's uh, obviously been through a, a hell of a lot in recent months off the back of her uh, personal injury claim against the hotel for falling off a swing in 2015. Okay, and I, I take it uh, when Michal Martin uh, says uh, there won't be payouts for whiplash, she's taking the high moral ground on all of this. And this takes us uh, to another story uh, and uh, very much related to what we're talking about uh, and uh, uh, an opinion piece uh, that you have in the Irish Independent today under the headline of Lure of Another Doll Seat Trump's Principle for Fianna Fáil. Yeah, uh, this is um, obviously a reference to the the by-election that you mentioned, uh, one of which is taking place in Dublin, Fingal. But one of uh, the candidates in that by-election, Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee, is in a spot of bother uh, in recent days as a result of the emergence of of a series of tweets uh, she posted in 2011 in which she used the words knacker and traveller in a in derogatory manner. Um, She also um, posted about how she uh, was on the bus for the first time in about a year um, and that a black Brazilian dwarf with ginger hair was sat beside her. She said that Kim Kardashian had a fat arse um, and she said other uh, things which have been deemed deeply offensive by an awful lot of people. Pavi Point um, have called for her to uh, resign and obviously there's a, a bit of pressure for her to be removed from the ticket in Dublin's Fingal but Fianna Fáil last night came out and, and backed the candidate saying that mm. she would not be subject to any disciplinary proceedings. And there's a, and a huge... She would, like, she would remain on the ticket in, in Dublin, okay. uh, Dublin Fingal. Sure, sorry to talk over you here. There's a huge nightclub not too far from where we are that a, a lot of our listeners would frequent, uh, I'm sure, and uh, she's described that as a sluts venue. 
Yeah, again, another tweet posted in 2011 where she compared the right venue, or rather she just said that the right venue equals the sluts venue on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, Lorraine Clifford Lee has made much of, of being a feminist. It's actually one of the things that's contained in her Twitter bio, and I think a, a lot of feminists out there would be appalled at the use of such language. One of her uh, one of her defences, and she has apologised for these tweets, uh, and she does appear to express regret for having posted them, uh, but she has sort of claim that they're part of a smear campaign that that you know, people are using her own words against her effectively um which which is a slightly unusual it's also been pointed out that these tweets were posted uh, many years ago at a time when she wasn't an elected representative for the party but as we write in the um, Irish Independent this morning she was at that stage a long-serving member of the Fianna Fáil national executive she was uh, elected to it back in the early 2000s as I understand it uh, and had been uh, on the national executive in 2011 when she was posting this stuff on Twitter so uh, it was really a question of judgment I guess uh, she was a grown adult at the time and questions I suppose are being asked as to was it appropriate for this to be done obviously she would acknowledge it's not but also whether she's demonstrated good political judgment, I suppose, by by doing by posting them in the first place, and then secondly, uh, I suppose, claiming that that they're part of a, a smear campaign by people with a right wing agenda, whereas in reality, it's just deeply inappropriate tweets that shouldn't have been posted in the first place. Okay, well, uh, I suppose people like principled uh, politicians. Uh, you say there's uh, the chance of a seat for Clifford Lee, which. Uh throws principle out uh, the window and uh, I suppose undermines uh, the higher moral ground of Micheál Martin was hoping uh, to take it uh, because it, it would seem very questionable uh, that uh, Miss Clifford Lee is uh, questioning uh, the uh, people uh, who attend a, a nightclub without knowing them uh, and uh, making what would seem to be racist comments even if uh, they were in the past. Uh, but uh, she is obviously a contender for this seat in Fingal. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, she's she's hotly tipped to to take the seat in Dublin Fingal, not without stiff competition. I might might say that from uh, you know a, a number of other candidates in the race, Fine Gael will be hoping that James Riley can regain a seat there. The Green Party has a has a candidate too, who's been backed by a few people locally, who who I've spoken to. Uh, Michael O'Brien, I think, is his name. Um, Claire Daly's uh, candidate out there. I'm afraid his name escapes me at this moment in time, but but he's also obviously going to be in the running because it is Claire Daly's seat that is being uh, that is up for grabs, or her former seat. She was elected to the European Parliament in May. So, um, you know, this would be a seat where Fianna Fáil would be pretty, uh, pretty keen to, to or it would be a seat that, that Fianna Fáil are pretty keen to take. Uh, they do need to boost the number of TDs in Dublin uh, and taking a second seat in Dublin Fingal to add to that of, of the local TD and the party's housing spokesperson, Dara O'Brien, would be a, a significant coup for the party. But by-elections are hard enough to win as it is uh, without these kind of stories appearing uh, in the media and obviously being splashed across the front of our paper uh, yesterday and uh, today. Mm. OK, uh, and uh, what chances uh, has, are, are there for Fine Gael taking any of the four seats? Well, Fine, Fine Gael have been downplaying expectations. Uh, Leo Radker said in September that he uh, wanted the party to take at least one seat. Uh, really, it's hard to see where that seat might come. Um, Dublin Midwest is uh, seen as, as, a, as, a, as a big target. Uh, they have uh, Emer Higgins there, the, the local councillor. Um, she's running uh, for a seat vacated by Francis Fitzgerald, the former Taunister, who was elected to the European Parliament in May. Um, and the Taoiseach was out there, in fact, last week as the polling order was signed for the by-elections to canvass for Bremer Higgins. So that would perhaps give you an indication of where his priorities lie in terms of taking a seat. I'd say the chances of them taking a seat, are, are at least one anyway, are, are decent. But not taking any would be pretty disastrous for the party. 
uh, you know, just the, the whole narrative and the whole idea of the party not winning any of the four by-elections taking place on November 29th would be a serious blow to the credibility of the government and to, to the Taoiseach himself. So really, at the very least, uh, Fine Gael needs to be taking one seat. They'll also obviously uh, be hoping that they can uh, knock out Lorraine Clifford Lee in Dublin's mm-hmm. Fingal. And, and, and um, if they don't and take... That mm-hmm. in, in Wexford, they hope that Verona Murphy, the, the very high-profile president of the Irish Road Haulage Association, mm-hmm. could take a seat there. And in Court North Central as well, um, they'll be hopeful that the long, long-serving Senator Colin Burke might uh, be in with a chance of unseating mm-hmm. uh, Fianna Fáil. Uh, I'm sure, but if uh, they don't manage to take a seat, will it call into question the Taoiseach's judgment in not holding a general election on the 29th of November? Well, in many ways it wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't be good for him, but, but I suppose it would, it would justify him not having gone to the country in all 40 constituencies because perhaps the result would have been even worse for Fine Gael if he had. Um, I think if Fine Gael doesn't take any seats on the 29th of November, it would be indicative of a party that's not particularly popular amongst the general public. So in, in some ways, the Taoiseach might, might be justified in not, in not having uh, gone the whole hog at the end of November uh, if it's a bad day for, for Fine Gael. But nonetheless, it's, it's a bit of a catch-22. Excuse me, catch twenty-two for the party. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd uh, they'd want to uh, they they want to take seats, uh, but if they if they were to take two or three seats, obviously they might regret not calling a general election. But equally, if they uh, take no seats, uh, they would be justified. It would be a very bad day for the party, but they would be uh, justified in not having gone to the country as a whole. Okay, Hugh. Many thanks for that. Much appreciated. That's Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish Independent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Lots of reaction uh, concerning the new laws for motorists and overta- you know, in relation to overtaking cyclists. Loads of people in touch and not a lot of love, I have to say, this morning for those who are on the bikes. Oh. Jim in Navin says cyclists should be made to cycle in single file on public roads. Consideration for other road users as well. Some of them chatting and just holding up traffic from behind. Mm. Michael, does this does the bicycle, bicycle have to be in a single file? Sometimes bicycles are three wide on the road. How can you give them the metre that you are told to? Yeah, from and that's in the know? town and one and a half metres outside of the town, which might be okay on some roads, but impossible on others. Pat from Bilbriggan is concerned that these rules won't even be enforced. He says they cannot even enforce the phone rules. I'd love to invite Minister Ross to Bilbriggan to see the cyclists constantly on the pavement, hitting people coming out of shops, abusing them. It's only a matter of time until some elderly person is killed by one of them, I fear. Nobody seems to be interested in stopping it. Mm. The cyclist says a texter wants to obey the rules of the road as well. They take over half the road, Michael. It's disgraceful. Yeah. Uh, will the bicycles on the footpath, uh, will anything be done to stop them, says Mary? Should there not be a law about that? Mm, maybe they should give a metre or a metre and a half to overtake pedestrians. Maybe so. <laughs> Teresa and Lavin, mm. listening to the carry-on, as she puts it, oh, about cyclists. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think it leaves motorists, motorists very vulnerable. Somebody could accuse you 
uh, Michael, of overtaking dangerously when maybe you haven't. Uh, they may try and yeah. look for compensation for that, says mm. Teresa. Mm. Uh, even though it's the cyclists themselves that could have been careless in the first place, what is going to stop anybody accusing you? I think Shane Ross would want to cop on. When is the motorist safe? It's a very twisted one, says Teresa. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, um, somebody might uh, accuse you. That doesn't mean it happened or it happened in the way that they say it happened or perceived it to have happened uh, because quite often people perceive things uh, differently than uh, they happened realistically and therein may lie some of the problems uh, in terms of uh, bringing uh, about uh, these fines and these penalty points. Jimmy also phoned in. He says there's no point in bringing in these laws when we can't be sure they will be enforced. He has has experience himself of ringing the Gardaí about driver behaviour on the roads and was told he'd have to come into the station to make a statement so he wouldn't hold out much hope for mm. these new rules. Yeah, well, a statement in itself uh, means uh, that it's your word against somebody else's word and uh, they may have viewed it to have been perfectly safe to have overtaken you. Dermot says it's not often he agrees with you Michael so there you go he does on this one he's in complete agreement Mm. how are you supposed to judge a metre or a metre and a half it's ludicrous you can't he drives around and dock regularly where he sees there are ample cycle lanes and he always meets cyclists on the road completely ignoring the cycle lanes so what are you supposed to do about people like that cyclists should face the same penalties for reckless behaviour as motorists do. Mm, Okay. So we'll go on with still more, Michael. Mm, (laughs) Michael, what about the laws for cyclists? They seem to get off scot-free. What Mm. about when they behave dangerously Mm. on the road? Some of them cycle right out into the middle of the road. They make it impossible to pass. Um, Everyone needs to share the road and I don't think it should be just the motorists who are penalised. Yeah, well, you could imagine the mayhem if uh, you were driving behind a bicycle and you weren't going to overtake the bicycle because you felt you didn't have uh, the metre and a half and the line of cars behind you and uh, the frustration and agitation that would result from all of that. Mary, though, says that uh, she thinks it's a good idea. She says that if people are going to be hit in the pocket, then they will think twice about passing cyclists in a dangerous fashion okay. and it will make mm. people think mm. twice yeah. well, about no, how they behave on the roads. Well that's it, nobody uh, should uh, endanger anybody else and everybody should be safe on the roads uh, but uh, I'm not sure how realistic it is uh, for the roads that we have to share bicycles and cars, uh, there just isn't the room. Paul was also in touch. He has been a cycling advocate for 21 years. He says that while he welcomes uh, this initiative mm. of a safe pass, he says it's lip service by the government and he refers to the new €3 million Euro town development in Dundalk and on at the moment. There's no cycle lane on either Church Street mm. or Clan Brazil Street despite cycling advocates calling for this. So he says it's just lip service. They really don't want to provide cycle lanes uh, for for cyclists, you know, to travel safely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another listener says, we need cycle lanes so that people can cycle safely. It's It's a hazard out there, Michael. My husband had to stop 
uh, cycling because of the amount of near misses. He now has to drive to work mm. when he was within distance to be able to go on his bike. Yeah. Uh, it puts people off using the roads uh, because some motorists, not all, but some just don't look around them. They don't give enough room to cyclists on the road. And mm. I feel that this new law is badly needed. Yeah, well, I mean, two wrongs don't make a, a right. Uh, and I, I think uh, the one thing that it is wrong in this country is uh, that the roads are not designed for bicycles and cars and there just isn't uh, the room for both and there certainly isn't uh, the room on a, a lot of roads for cycle lanes. Uh, I mean uh, there's uh, one of the most ludicrous examples locally not far from where we're sitting this morning at Southgate uh, I think it's mm. uh, illegal actually to drive in a cycle lane but I challenge anybody uh, to drive uh, around Southgate where the bicycle lanes are uh, and uh, be on the right side of the road because uh, there isn't a room for a car between oh. the cycle lane and the middle of the road. OK. Michael from Drogheda, he says that the Minister needs to think about bringing in a law against cyclists who are on footpaths. People are on footpaths trying to walk and the next thing you have, someone on a mm. bike going at an awful speed past you very dangerous yeah. I also regularly see cyclists cycling the wrong way on one way streets says this listener mm. uh, they should have to adhere to the rules of the road a lot of them don't wear reflectors when they should uh, so they can't be seen and also this is an interesting one mm-hmm. I've also noticed a lot of electric scooters now I saw one the other day in Drogheda speeding down the road towards the traffic on the wrong side of the road mm. so that's another dangerous element yeah, well, I mean, I think it is illegal to cycle on the footpath as things stand it's illegal to cycle without uh, lights uh, when it's dark and all of that sort of thing uh, and you're recommended to have reflective clothing as well Sheila says cyclists don't obey the law they go through red lights and cycle on footpaths another listener what about cyclists who cycle on the paths and break red lights uh, new cycle laws says Tony from Dunshockland cyclists need to change their behaviour on the roads mm. I have been behind groups of cycles for over five kilometres plus some of the roads aren't wide enough to give the 1.5 well uh, that's exactly the point that I've been making and and I think another thing is uh, that uh, there are some cyclists uh, who uh, don't seem to be aware that those road signs apply to them as well so if there's a stop sign or a yield sign that they're meant to stop or yield you don't just come around a corner without stopping Patrick from Navin. It's all very well making drivers more aware of cyclists, but what about the law uh, for cyclists who ig- ignore the rules of the road? Mm. I think that 1.5 metre is somewhat idiotic in rural areas, mm. says Patrick. Okay. So that's just some of the, <laughs> all the right, cycling, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah, It'll be time for anything yeah, else. Okay. We have a couple on Lisa Smith and the um, mm. Uh, just I'll give you a flavour of them um, is Lisa Smith just going to arrive home and settle back into her old life is that not a concern that she would be allowed to roam freely when we don't really know where her sympathies currently not lie says a listener Leo from Donna Carney phoned in 
and says um, he heard an interview where six young girls say that they were trained by Lisa Smith. Is that going to be looked into? Is it going to be investigated? Noel says that he can't understand why people are so harsh towards Lisa Smith. If you think about it, didn't the Jews forgive the Germans for what they done? He feels that when you look at our history here in Ireland, the Irish, I feel, never want to forgive. There's still, for example, a lot of English bashing going on, even though many people I know built great lives by emigrating to England. I believe we should forgive and give this woman a chance. And that texter says, who's paying the bill to bring Lisa Smith home? I feel she's made her bed. Now she should lie in it. John from Drogheda, she should be left over there. She knew what she was getting involved in when she went over there. If if her husband was still alive, would she still want to be coming back here now? Okay, some strong those. thoughts there. And thanks to everybody who took the time to share them with us. Thanks for bringing us uh, those calls and comments on the programme this morning for that matter, Marie. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I'm sure there's a few parents in uh, this country who haven't been asked uh, by uh, their children's schools to make a contribution to help the running of uh, the school and that that contribution would be made on a a voluntary basis. But many of uh, those parents will tell you that they felt that they had no choice but to make a contribution or there would be consequences for their children. The Education Student and Parent Charter Bill has been making its way through uh, the Oireachtas and uh, and the amendment made by Sinn Féin Senator Paul Gavin uh, may see a change to how contributions are made to schools, if at all. Senator Gavin is on the line and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, in fact, uh, you're uh, of the view that this could be uh, the beginning of the end of voluntary contributions. We certainly hope so, Michael, and thanks for your time on your programme this morning. Yes, we've made an amendment uh, to the bill last week, and I'm glad to say it was passed. The only party that opposed it was Fine Gael. Uh, and the amendment basically uh, requires schools to publish information in relation to how much money they collect on these so-called voluntary contributions. And it also requires the Department of Education to report annually on the amount of money that is collected across all schools. And the reason we think this could hopefully lead to the end of voluntary contributions is because the department has been in denial for some years in relation to the underfunding of the school system. And once this information is made public and they're required to collect it, well, their argument is absolutely shot through to pieces. Uh, so we think this is, a, this is a significant development. That's why the department opposed it last week. But I'm glad to say that uh, the Senate as a whole were very much persuaded of the merits of our mm-hmm. amendment, and it was passed quite comfortably. Many of uh, the schools in question uh, use uh, these contributions uh, to keep the lights on uh, and keep the schools warm and that sort of thing. So if the contributions stop, how will they fund the day-to-day running of the schools? Well, the point is the contributions won't stop until the department fund them correctly. I mean, we know that. Uh, But what the department have been in denial about for years is the fact that these schools are underfunded. And you're quite right, Michael. Um, Heating, lighting, basic functions of schools are dependent on these contributions, but the contributions are wholly unfair. And what we've got to be clear on is this. It's not normal or okay for schools uh, to have to depend on voluntary contributions. It doesn't happen in other countries. Other countries fully fund the education system. Um, And it's particularly unfair on, on, on working families, people who are struggling to get by week to week, 
Um, I know myself, I have three teenagers, and uh, our own contributions are of the, 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 mm. the range of €350 Euros per year. Um, I know some contribution is much higher than that. Uh, and the point is this, it shouldn't be necessary. And don't forget, Michael, in a few months' time, we'll hear all sorts of promises from Fine Gael about the need for tax cuts. And Sinn Féin's argument is simple. Let's invest in our public services. Let's invest in our education system. Let's make it... Uh, uh, clear that no voluntary contributions should be required. It's entirely possible for that to happen. What's lacking at the minute is the political will to make it happen. But that means you pay for it anyway, doesn't it? Uh, the voluntary contributions may be mandatory, uh, but it, it's uh, just a way of paying it. Uh, either you give it directly to the school or it's taken out of your income through taxes. Yeah, but the point about taking it out through your income through taxes is that that's a progressive way of doing it. That means that those who earn more make more of a contribution to, this, to, 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 to your schooling and to education. That's what other countries do. Those who um, pay more may not thank you for it, of course. Well, I don't, well you know what? This is a, a key dividing line in politics, and I'm very proud of where Sinn Féin stands on this line. We believe in investment in public services, in our schools, in our hospitals, uh, in, in more broadly in our education and public services. Uh, and I think most parents do understand that voluntary contributions, and I even hate that term because mm. we all know that in reality they're not voluntary, uh, are grossly unfair because they take no account of the ability to pay. Yeah, well, they are voluntary in the sense uh, that you're being asked uh, for the money or else it's a bit like uh, having a gun to your head or uh, being told uh, that you either pay up or you'll do without lockers or whatever the consequence is. Well, you're quite right. I mean, and I've seen examples of that uh, sitting on the Education Committee in Eroptus. We've heard horror stories of how uh, some schools, and I would say a stress a minority of schools, have victimised uh, students in relation to matters like that. And here's the thing. I mean, either we believe in free education or we don't. And where are we? 40, 50 years after Dr. O'Malley's uh, free education, we have parents paying uh, week in, week out for, for addition, additional uh, issues in their education system. And, and what I want to stress is it doesn't have to be this way. And I do think that the amendment that we've passed last week is significant because for the first time, the Department of Education will have to hold their hands up and, and calculate each year exactly what the deficit of their funding is and publish it. And I think and I hope that that will be a game changer. Okay, we'll leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin Senator Paul Gavin. Now, as part of Stand Up Awareness Week, uh, the Belong To group has published uh, a survey which has found uh, that 73% of LGBTI students feel unsafe in their schools and 77% of uh, these students experience verbal abuse, 38% have experienced physical abuse. I've been speaking with Maninya Griffith, uh, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Belong To Services. Well, unfortunately, they're as shocking as they are, they weren't surprising. We know from working with LGBTI young people that school can sometimes be a very brutal place um, I think we were quite shocked, maybe at quite the level of violence, I suppose, that some LGBT young people, unfortunately, have to um, endure. Uh, and some of the sentiments, in, in fact, uh, about, you know, just having to get through second level school uh, until it's safe to come out when they, when they leave. 
Uh, shocked about the level of absenteeism mm. as well. So on top of, I suppose, the atrocious levels of uh, assault and um, a, a violence, even some sexual violence, um, the level of absenteeism, I suppose, from escaping that kind of brutality ha- seems to have risen. The last time it was measured was part of a Trinity College study in 2016, where they found about 20% of young people uh, skipped school to avoid uh, LGBT bullying. The this latest survey looks like it's more around the 40%, uh, which is obviously um, deeply worrying because not only does it mean that you know that young people don't feel safe and they don't feel they belong and don't feel that they're welcome in school, but it's going to have an, a knock-on impact for them. Um, in terms of their own career, in terms mm. of you know getting a, a leaving certificate or a good leaving certificate, so it's something that they may have to. I mean, the impact of of saying may you know endure in, in, for their entire their lives, lives, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Uh, is there a misconception? Do you think uh, that uh, people uh, who are not heterosexual, uh, everybody else, in other words, uh, are accepted uh, and embraced by society? That seemed to be the impression that a lot of people had uh, following on from uh, the marriage referendum. That's it exactly. I think everybody thinks post marriage referendum that everything's rainbows, you know, mm. growing up LGBT plus in Ireland, but it's not. You know, um, we are still, uh, you know, shaped by a lot of prejudice, um, a lot of homophobia and transphobia. Mm. All of us, including LGBT people, have myths and stereotypes uh, and that. And so that takes time, you know, to change mindsets, to change behaviour. Um, and so kind of the common off the cuff remarks, um, things being called gay, you know, just yep. as pejoratively, um, you know, well, a young person has described that as, you know, coming home from school feeling like they've had a thousand paper cuts, you know, so it's cumulative. Mm. So, you know, for a lot of young people, what happens is they take that information and then they go, right, well, I'm never coming out. I'm never going to mm. share that mm. information mm. with my peers and my friends in school. And we know that that's where the harm is done because it's the shame and the secrecy that has the impact on somebody's mental health and well-being and then as a result LGBT young people are at a much higher risk of uh, self-harm and mm. suicide ideation so yeah. what this week is all about really making sure that school communities including uh, teachers and parents and board of management understand that there's still a lot of work to be done some of the teachers are doing great work around Ireland to make sure that schools are welcoming and safe mm. and some LGBT obviously students. not yeah there's a, there's a lot of work feeding into done, it it so. would seem uh, I think uh, going to school uh, in this day and age is probably uh, a lot different uh, to when people of my generation would have gone to school in the 70s and 80s people just weren't gay. Uh, I don't think there was even sex, let alone uh, any different form of uh, sex. People certainly didn't come out uh, and with good reason because they would have ex- expected this type of reaction. Uh, I, I don't know, is that the type of reaction that people are expecting today? I mean, are, are they hearing these kind of remarks, uh, this kind of uh, abuse from people who, let's say, would have had rainbow colours on their profile on Facebook and that sort of thing? Well, um, it's you know, I think that the more extreme behaviour, not so much, but the kind of off-the-cuff remarks, people, what they think is uh, banter, you know, and not intended to harm anyone or hurt anyone. Um, I think the people need to be aware that it, uh, the impact that that can have on the people in their mm. peer groups. Um, you know, 12 is the most common age for a young person to realise that they may be LGBT, but uh, the research shows that it might they might be 15 or 16 before they tell another human being so that 
four years can be a very lonely, isolating time and young people can be very sensitive then to hearing remarks that are said about LGBT young people um, and it's something that they can internalise um, and uh, can have a really devastating mm. impact on their self-worth, their self-confidence um, and their mental health and well-being. It's almost so a given though, isn't it, Maninia? It's almost a, a given in that the vast majority uh, of LGBTI students have some sort of negative experience? Unfortunately, that would seem to be the case, all right. Um, uh, but we do hear good stories all the time mm. about students who are in schools where the, the school management and leadership um, are taking steps to ensure that they address homophobic and transphobic bullying and to make sure that LGBT people feel more included in the curriculum um, and to make sure that the teachers have the uh, materials and the training and the resources that they need to firstly address homophobic and transphobic bullying but also to support LGBT mm. students when they're coming out in school. Uh, and as you say, it's a minority of people who have a very negative experience, uh, and some of those experiences are exceptionally negative, uh, not just verbal assaults, but physical assaults, sometimes uh, including weapons. Uh, one of uh, the people who responded to your survey said that they were sexually assaulted because of their sexuality. That mm-hmm. seems bizarre in itself. Yeah, the, well, if it's the same one that uh, you're referring to that I read, is the young man who was sexually assaulted after PE by the boys in his class um, because he was gay um, uh, for three years, you know? And, I mean, that is just completely unacceptable, in, in I think, in everybody's um, mind and, and uh you know that the mm. fact that that young person didn't feel that there was anybody that he could go to in his school to to talk to about this and to get support, I think, um, you know, speaks volumes. And not only about the, the the horrible boys who did that to to him, but the culture that was uh, that existed in that school where mm. you know that kind of behaviour you know went unchecked, unnoticed, and. Um, you know, quite frankly, probably yeah. ruined that poor young man's life. It, it, it seems bizarre. It certainly uh, would appear to be distorted thinking uh, that uh, because of his sexual sexuality, he was uh, sexually uh, abused. That was a, a boy who uh, suffered that type of uh, abuse. Uh, one of uh, the girls who spoke to your survey uh, talked about being punched and kicked by other girls. Yeah, we and we we hear that on the front line regularly, and other young people being pushed downstairs or uh, pushed into the showers, and the the cold water turned on. Um, you know, uh, you see, I think it's um, a sliding scale, and we mm. know that 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 kind of banter can, if it goes unchecked, uh, unaddressed, then can escalate to. Um, property being damaged or stolen, um, lies and innuendo and rumours being spread um, in the classroom and online. Um, and then it can escalate to that, that physical violence um, uh, and even in some cases, as we said, some sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Is there a gang mentality and uh, if you object, uh, then uh, you may suffer as well? I, I, that I didn't... I didn't I don't know, I didn't have any, mm. see any evidence of that. Mm. Uh, but certainly, I think in a school that has a very strong policy, anti-bullying policy, that expressly includes 
um, homophobic and transphobic bullying as being unacceptable where, you know, uh, and this is this goes across the board, so we would have worked with schools that would have um, a predominantly Roman Catholic ethos um, uh, and, you know, but yet are very strict about bullying and very strict uh, about it being unacceptable um, about any reason, including sexual orientation, gender identity. So, mm. um, yeah, okay. there's, there's lots of schools doing great stuff, but I think um, the message this week is very strong. It's very clear. We need to be doing more as parents, as students, as teachers, um, and the Department of Education and the Minister of Education really needs to be um, uh, needs to wake up and start resourcing. Uh, schools and teacher training colleges to make sure that our schools are safe for this and future generations of Irish students. Manyanya Griffith, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Belong To organisation. Now, there's uh, concern for an infant who has endured serious injuries and has been taken to Temple Street Children's Hospital in Ashburn. And Michael Carlin joins us uh, from our newsroom to tell us more. Good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for coming in to us uh, with uh, this breaking story. What more can you tell us? Um, what we can tell you is that uh, Gardaí received a call um, to attend a scene at a house in Ashburn at around 7 o'clock yesterday morning. Uh, when Gardaí arrived, they discovered that a woman in her 20s ha- had been assaulted, uh, unfortunately. Also, during that attack, a baby, an infant baby, um, not too sure exactly of the age, or waiting on confirmation, but a, but, but a very young infant, uh, also sustained injuries. Um, we understand the child was not directly assaulted, but suffered injuries as a result of the incident which, 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 which had happened. Um, the child, we understand, has uh, received a fractured skull. As you said, serious injury, um, but Gardaí have clarified, uh, thankfully not life-threatening, but nonetheless uh, the child is being treated at Temple Street Children's University Hospital in Dublin. Um, a man in his 20s was arrested at the scene and he's currently being held at Ashburn Garda Station. OK, now you've been reporting as well on uh, the €1.4 million euro seizure of cocaine in Drogheda yesterday uh, and uh, there is additional news in respect of that. Uh, yes, just in the past few minutes, Michael, um, Gardaí have confirmed that they carried out a number of follow-up searches late last night um, and during one of those searches, uh, they recovered twenty five thousand euro worth of cannabis um, uh, late last night as well. On that, so that's on top, as you've mentioned, the one point four million cocaine seizure, uh, which uh, which took place early yesterday. Um, they carried out a number of uh, follow up searches as part of the same operation last night, uh, and an additional twenty five thousand euro worth of, of cannabis was seized during those searches. Very good, thank you indeed. Uh, with uh, those breaking stories, Michael Carolyn of LMFM News. Michael Reed on LMFM. The headline on uh, the front page of uh, the Irish Daily Mail yesterday read, we're failing our children over online pornography, which was uh, based on an interview with uh, the leader of uh, Fianna Fáil, Michal Martin, told to the paper that he would make protecting young people online a priority if he was to be elected Taoiseach, and that as a state we're currently letting children down in this country by failing to protect them from hardcore pornography online. Now, some might say that's a a little bit like calling the kettle black or the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, We'll talk about this in a a moment with Fianna Fáil TD Fiona O'Loughlin. But before we do, let's hear part of an online campaign by a group that calls itself Hands Off Our Kids. Childhood masturbation, abortion, change in gender, LGBTQI issues, pornography, 
As a parent, looking at the role that pornography played in horrific crime, I think I speak for most parents when I say I don't want porn normalised for my children in school. Then there's Fiona O'Loughlin, a teacher who told it all that some parents wouldn't be fit for the job when it comes to sex education. This patronising attitude is a handy cover for making explicit sex ed mandatory and undermining the right of every parent to decide what values to pass on to our children. The reference point for most of this madness is the World Health Organisation who are setting standards for what the Irish government believes your children must be taught. Early childhood masturbation, consenting to sexual activity at nine years of age, changing genders and more. And it'll all be a reality in your child's classroom unless you speak up. As I say, that's part of an online campaign by a group called Hands Off Our Kids. Fiona O'Loughlin, a Fianna Fáil TD and chair of the Oireachtas Education Committee is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Good this, morning, Michael. This group also has a, a leaflet campaign. They've been distributing leaflets across Kildare South in your constituency saying that you want children to be taught porn literacy. Look, there is complete information both in the leaflet and in the clip that you've just played. It's the first time I've heard that clip. It, it's quite shocking. It's completely defamatory in terms of repeating um, what I allegedly said. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is one recommendation that we made out of 24 in relation to the Education Committee, which I'm chair of, review of the RSC policy and we did decide that we should put in a recommendation to say that young people in school should learn about the negative impact of porn. So how that translates into making young people porn literate, I honestly don't know. So it's complete misinformation that's out there. In terms of what Micheál Martin said yesterday mm. in relation to the article, I completely agree with him. I think, you know, particularly in light of the two court cases that we saw last week, where we saw that the three young boys that were involved, one in Dunleary and two in uh, Leakslip Lucan, that they had all accessed uh, pornography at a very early age. And research has shown that there is a link in terms of um, crimes against women. And that we absolutely have to protect our young people. So going back to the recommendations that the committee made, we felt last year in 2018 that this was an area that we needed to look at, that the world that our children are trying to navigate now is so completely different than it was 20 years ago. So when you talk about children watching pornography, it's a question of being streetwise, if you like, or pornwise, knowing what the danger is, talking about it. And this group says that talking about it uh, is, uh, in effect, porn literacy. I don't believe any child should watch porn, uh, no matter what. But they do. But but it is a fact that they do. And I think we have to recognise that as teachers, as parents and as legislators. And I think we need to have a, an open and honest conversation about the negative impact that that has on young people. Young people are trying to explore mm. and they are accessing incorrect information, unregulated information. I think we all have a duty to make sure that they learn about relationships and sex education in, terms, in, in a controlled environment. Parents are the primary educators of their children. There is no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But many parents didn't have 
sex education themselves. They may be naive, possibly, about what their children are accessing, or they may feel they don't have the skills. So it has to be a partnership approach with schools and with teachers. But the point that Michal Martin is also making is that the online platforms need to be regulated as well. So there is an onus on those that are providing online platforms to make sure young people are not accessing absolutely inappropriate mm. information. The, the, the woman in the clip we played uh, listed off uh, uh huge variety of different things that children may or may not be up to and uh, I take it uh, to some extent uh, that uh, children do engage in these activities. Uh, Is it right uh, in your view uh, that we talk about all of them with our children? Well our our main priority when we we started looking at this we engaged with 56 different organisations we had 24 of them at different meetings and we had people representing teachers, parents students, the Department of Education, academics in the area uh, and universities as well because they do quite a lot around consent classes. I actually went along to Mm. see them myself in Trinity. And so, you know, these didn't come out of nowhere. Our main areas of concern was that we would equip our our young people with with factual information around health matters Mm. to do with sexuality. So it's really around contraception, consent and LGBT issues. And all research shows that where young people have the opportunity to learn about Mm. RSE in a... um, in, in a safe and controlled manner, that the health outcomes are much better. We've less STIs, we have less mm. unplanned pregnancies. And all of that has to be welcomed. But not just about those issues, about all of the issues that were mentioned, masturbation, uh, transgenders, uh, and so on. I mean, this group is saying uh, that uh, it should be up to parents to educate their children. Uh, but I, I take it that this group doesn't want their children to know about these things, which they're finding out about uh, on their phones anyway, whether they want to or not. Uh, because I think most young girls will tell you that they receive photographs without looking at pornography. They receive photographs from boys that maybe they go to school with or, or live near in their neighbourhood uh, who are sending them intimate photographs of themselves. It's, it's, it's a huge problem that we have and for young people trying to navigate um, this world, I, I, I think it's really difficult and I absolutely think there's an onus on all of us. I think, you know, people sticking their heads in the sand or parents um, just refusing to believe that their children might have access to this kind of information is actually adding to the problem. So we need to have healthy, open conversations in relation to the issues that you mentioned. But it needs to be age-appropriate and it needs to be developmentally appropriate also. But what is age-appropriate? Who's deciding that? Is that something uh, that we can decide as adults or is it something that is decided for all of us by the children who decide to look at the stuff at whatever age they decide to look at it? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert. I was a teacher in, in a former life but I'm certainly not an expert in this area. And this is where we would be bringing expertise in. And obviously, teachers would have to have um, very supportive and adequate training in relation to, to mm. this. And that would also be divided by the NCCA with a lot of conversations and consultation with parents and with school bodies. In fact, the Department of Education rolled out a consultation mm. period. It just finished last week. 
and the recommendations that we made as a committee will be forming part of that consultation. Okay, so everybody had an opportunity to make their views known. Okay, it was kind of a, a rhetorical question because it's the kids who decide, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if you have a phone, uh, you're let loose with it. Uh, and uh, there's little point in deciding, uh, well, the appropriate age is 15 to be watching pornography, uh, whether it's appropriate or not, but we expect that you're going to be watching it at 15 if children are actually watching it at 8, 9 or 10. Well, I think that children need to have a say, but equally they they can't have the total say. It is shocking when we hear mm. how a, how young young people are accessing these type of images, and we. So how do, how, how do you control that? You know what I mean. This is the, the, yeah. the, the, this isn't you know wishful thinking. This is the reality of the situation where you may say, "I, I wish they weren't," but they are. But I don't have all the answers yeah. at this mm-hmm. point. Okay. Um, as a committee, we took this very seriously and we've made recommendations. And we have asked the departments, the NCCA and others within the area to look at the 24 recommendations that we made. We were very clear about age and development appropriate, but I most certainly am, am not giving a, an age that I feel that, you know, we should be looking at it. But I think we have to be in the real world and we have to listen to those that have more experience, expertise and knowledge than I have in terms of setting those mm. barriers. It's all about, mm-hmm. you know, giving boundaries to our children, because in many ways they don't have boundaries in terms of what they access. And we need to equip them with the knowledge about, you know, putting the boundaries there. Okay. We leave there for the moment. Uh, a lot of unanswered questions. I'm not sure who can answer them at this stage, but thank you indeed for talking about them with us. Thank you very much indeed. Fiona O'Loughlin, who is a Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare South and Chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Education. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents uh, that Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Ronan Farley of Navin Station joins us for the report this week. And we begin in Bettystown, where Garda are appealing for anybody who has information to come forward uh, about a murder murder that uh, occurred there. Yes, Michael, good morning. Um, I want to start with the ongoing investigation into the murder of Richie Carberry in Bettystown last Monday night, the 4th of November. Now, Gardaí issued a further appeal uh, last week in relation to two vehicles that we're very interested in. Now, these two vehicles were in the Bettystown area in the days and weeks uh, before the murder last Monday, the 4th of November. The first vehicle is a Peugeot Bipper van registration 08D124410. That vehicle was purchased in South Dublin as far back as September and we know that it was in the Castle Martin Close and the Eastern Close area in the days and weeks before the murder. It was parked up. Um, The second vehicle is a Blue Ford Fiesta registration 06D80706. That was also sighted in the General Bettystown area in the lead up to the killing. Now, that car was found burnt out a short time after the shooting in Ballybottle in North Dublin. So we are appealing to anybody who recalls seeing either of those vehicles maybe parked outside their house in the days and weeks leading up to the killing, or particularly immediately after the killing on Monday night 
of last week at 11.40pm. Between 11.40pm and 12.20am, that blue Ford Fiesta travelled from Bettystown to Ballybahal. Perhaps somebody remembers seeing it or encountering it. If you have dash cam footage, we'd be very interested in hearing from you. The instant room is based at Ashburn Garda Station and the number is 01-801-0600 or indeed people can contact the Garda mm. Confidential Line on one 800 one. And I also would like to say that there's photographs of those two vehicles issued. They're on the Mead Crime Prevention Facebook page and indeed the LMFM website if people want to look at those. And am I right in thinking that the second vehicle hasn't been recovered? Second vehicle, uh, the first vehicle mm-hmm. was burnt out yes. close to the mm-hmm. scene. The second vehicle was also burnt out in Ballybottle. Mm-hmm. Okay, beg your pardon. Okay, uh, we go to Navin, uh, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary which occurred uh, over a week ago. Yes, Michael, this was also Monday of last week, the early hours of the 4th of November. Um, Taylor's Bar in Johnstown, in the middle of Johnstown in Navin, was broken into around 3am. Uh, we know that four masked men entered the premises through a side door and they took a safe from the premises. Um, now, they left the scene in a grey Volkswagen Golf Estate, a 181MH registration. Now, we know that that car was stolen a couple of hours earlier in the Byerstown area outside Navan, and then it was found burnt out at Mullaby Industrial Estate in Navan. The safe was in the car, but needless to say, the contents were gone. So if anybody can recall uh, the early hours of last Monday, the 4th of November, in the Johnstown or Navan area, if they recall any suspicious or unusual activity, Again, that's a grey Volkswagen Golf Estate. If they have any information, to contact Navan Garda Station. OK, a second burglary to report on then in Navan, and this one occurred yesterday. The early hours of yesterday morning at 1.35am, a pharmacy was broken into at the Commons Road in Navan, and a till was taken from the premises. Uh, so if anybody was in that part of Navan, Again, if they saw any suspicious or unusual vehicle, Navangardi would like to hear from you. Okay, and it's cold out there this morning, uh, and indeed uh, it may get even colder. Uh, Advice uh, for our listeners this morning on being prepared for the winter, or to be winter ready, as you put it. That's correct. Uh, Every year there's a campaign launched that's called the Be Winter Ready campaign. This year's campaign was launched on the 6th of November. Now, as you know, winter is nearly upon us. Conditions uh, can be hazardous for motorists, for cyclists, for pedestrians. There's a lot of information on the winterready.ie website, and we would strongly recommend people to spend a few minutes, have a look at that. A lot of advice on a whole range of areas. But the area I want to focus on, Michael, is, is roads, because that's kind of the area that affects us the most. And three things, really. First of all, is your car ready? Now is a good time to check your car especially your tyres the minimum tread depth is 1.6 millimetres however in winter conditions we advise to have a minimum tread depth of 3 millimetres so check your tyres make sure they're properly inflated if the tread depth is getting low replace them it's money well spent it's for your safety the safety of people around you and your family Secondly, windscreen wipers. Again, a very simple uh, thing. Just check your wipers, make sure they're clean and well. If they're not, replace them. Thirdly, put a high-vis vest in your car. Always carry one of those. You never know when mm. you'll break down or get stuck on a dark winter's evening. It's illegal not to have one in France, isn't it? I yeah, mean, you have to have all sorts of things countries. like the triangle and all of that's that type correct. of thing as well. It's yeah. a very mm. simple thing mm. to have, just have it mm-hmm. in your car. Mm-hmm. Also, a torch. We recommend have a torch in your car with good batteries. Check it every few weeks to make sure it's functioning. A set of jump leads is another very good investment, not too expensive, but very handy to have if you get stuck with a flat battery. 
and also de-icer have de-icer and do those things mm. now don't be putting it on the long finger check those things in the next few days secondly keep up to date you know don't be caught out unawares if there's going to be bad weather be aware be mm. ready give extra time for your journey there's lots of radio bulletins mm. uh, good forecasts from Met Air and yeah, so don't on don't wake up and say I wasn't expecting Absolutely. frost and, and drive off with the <laughs> windows uh, all frosted Correct. up and not able to see Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one good point Michael on Transport Infrastructure Ireland on their website you can register to receive alerts in relation to a particular route so for example if you're commuting every day from Dundalk to Dublin on the M1 you can put in that route and if something happens there you'll get an alert to your phone which mm. is very useful and also if if the snow or ice does come make sure you allow plenty of extra time for your journey needless to say drive with extreme caution make sure all your windows are clean from frost and snow mm. um, keep plenty of distance between you and the vehicle in front maneuver gently avoid any harsh braking that sort of thing can induce a skid and make sure your mobile phone is fully charged yeah and there are dark nights ahead as well so good to have two lights on your car absolutely <laughs> rather than one yeah. and water in and the, of course in the morning mm. don't leave your car the engine running defrosting your car mm. and go back into your house we see it every single winter cars are stolen oh, yeah. in those circumstances yeah, yeah. okay uh, we'll uh, conclude uh, with some meetings uh, that are to take uh, place locally across Loud uh, these are meetings of uh, the joint policing committees that's correct Michael um, the first one of those has taken place in Drogheda um, and that's uh, taking place in the Westcourt Hotel at 8.30pm on Monday the 25th of November the second one is the Dundalk Area Joint Policing Committee and that's taking place in Black Rock Community Centre on Tuesday the 26th at 7.30pm and the third one is on Thursday the 28th of November in RD that's taking place in the parochial centre in Hale Street at 7.30pm everybody's invited it's a good opportunity to discuss crime and policing in your area senior guardy will be present and will take questions on the night Sergeant Ronan Farrelly of Navin Garda Station thank you indeed we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme that's all we have time for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.